Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. start reading at verse 28 down through verse 30. Um, we're going to run into some words here that can be a little bit um, disconcerting if, uh, if you're not in tune with what, uh, what Paul's accomplishing in the text here. Um, we're going to see a, a list of five things that God does towards our salvation. It says that the ones that God foreknew he predestined, and these he called, and these he justified, and these he glorified. Those of you up on your Reformation theology are saying, now where is sanctification in that? It's between justification and glorification, and the process of getting from the one to the other is the sanctification. But Paul's going to talk about those five things um, as he's listing out how we can be positive that God works for our good. And it begins with that word, for new. Now, in a philosophical sense, we start to get hung up on these things because one of the things we experience in our lives, just as human beings, we experience a free will, if you will. And again, philosophers, not just theologians, debate back and forth about how much free will do you really have. Can you really choose other than you chose if you chose what you chose? Doesn't that mean you couldn't have chosen the other? And, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But what it boils down to is we all make choices in life, and, and it just seems like we um, have that ability to have two options, and we choose one and not the other. But when it says that God foreknew us, it seems to say that God had it all settled in his own mind. In other words, what some people have said is, if God foreknows what's going to happen, and he does. God has foreknowledge of everything that will happen. But the, the argument is, if God knows what's going to happen, then it has to happen. You don't have a choice. Because if you got there and you didn't do what God knew you were going to do, then he would be wrong, and God can't be wrong. Therefore, his foreknowledge means we have to do what he foreknows. Right now, I feel like saying, if you can snatch this marble out of my hand, grasshopper, you will, you will have uh, attained a, a level of learning. But, and so the argument goes is how can there be God's election of us, God's foreknowledge of us, and human free will at the same time? But in point of fact, the Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches that in point of fact, we have to make choices. I remind you that Joshua, when he brought the children of Israel across the Jordan and uh, he was uh, looking at them and he said, you know, folks, we're entering the promised land here. And if in your mind it's a hard thing, the King James says an evil thing, but it, it, it's a hard thing, a burdensome thing to serve God. If, if that's where you are, you better make up your mind. And he said it this way, choose this day whom you will serve. 
Choose either the Lord God of Israel who's brought you through the wilderness or choose the gods of the land into which you're going. Choose either to align your life with the God who has laid claim to you as his chosen people or choose to go with the flow, go with the society, go with the culture of the land where you're going. You make that choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua made that choice. The nation made that choice as well. They didn't stick with it quite uh, the way they ought to have, but they made that choice. And the Bible is clear that we are confronted with those kinds of choices to choose God this day. And so we have a responsibility, a human responsibility to choose God. And yet say, if God foreknows, then how can he have foreknowledge? If I still have free will to make a choice. Some people have said, well, that's because God knows what you were going to do. He looked ahead sort of like a, uh, in a seance. He looks in the crystal ball and he says, ah, Wayne is going to preach a sermon on the foreknowledge of God on, on, on that Sunday. And, and therefore, so I foreknow that because I saw that he did it. But that really doesn't solve the problem because if God foresees what I'm going to do before I do it and then I don't do it, then he was wrong to foresee it. And you still don't have the foreknowledge of God. So, grasshopper, this marble is... I'm getting these, these stairs like, I went through philosophy in college. I don't have to do this again, do I? <laughs> but what we need to understand is that God's foreknowledge is not just a matter of knowing facts. You see, there are different ways to know something in advance. One way to know things in advance is just know the facts of the issue and know the laws of how they're put together. For instance, I have foreknowledge of the universe. The sun will come up tomorrow. I know this. I have foreknowledge of this because, unless Jesus comes again, uh, you know, because the, the whole laws of nature and the laws of physics and all those, you can sit down and calculate out what's going to happen. You just know certain things are going to happen because you know that they're sort of baked into the nature of things. For instance, I have foreknowledge that the Washington Nationals will play in the playoffs this year. I mean, this is an astounding piece of foreknowledge. See, the playoffs haven't started, but they've clinched a spot. So my foreknowledge is based on just a prediction based on certain the, the, the flow of facts. This does not seem to be what we mean when we say God has foreknowledge. You know, God is not up in heaven with a legal pad, a pencil, a calculator, little mapping program, a graphing program, and trying to figure out, oh, I see what they're going to do. Well, if that bounces off of there, that bounces off of here. And, and all this, this is going to happen because I can predict it with my wonderful artwork of mathematics. That is not God's foreknowledge. That's a kind of foreknowledge that seems unworthy of the glory of who God is. Another way to have foreknowledge is to know that something is going to happen because someone you trust has promised that it will happen. For example, when the cable repairman says, I'll be at your house between 12 and 2 o'clock, you... Okay, this might be a bad example. <laughs> but when someone you know and you trust and you, and you believe in their integrity has promised you something, you say, well, I know it's going to happen. I can rely on that person. This is why we know that Jesus is coming again. This is why we know that we have a home in heaven. This is why we know that God is working in our lives. Because God who has you know, the character and the nature to guarantee his promises has told us what he will do. We know what he will do. And so our foreknowledge is based on our trust in him. Now, God's foreknowledge, however, will not be based on trusting us. You know, it's not as though God says, well, I'm just trusting Wayne someday to come through. 
I'm just trusting that one day he'll, he'll buck up and clean up his act and be what he ought to be. God is not, you know, waiting for us and trusting us for his foreknowledge. That would be called wishful thinking, for wishful thinking. Um, but, it's, but foreknowledge, that kind of foreknowledge based on trusting someone else seems unworthy of the God of glory. But there's another way to have foreknowledge, and that is if you have decided to do it yourself. See, in other words, I, I know where I'd be tomorrow because I have set aside everything in my, in, my, uh, in my plans and I'm going to be there. I mean, limited as we are, we know things come up. But we say, well, I, I have foreknowledge of what's going to happen because I'm going to do it. I'm the one who's going to perform it. Now, with us, that sort of breaks down because we're limited and finite and, um, and, and, and weak and those kinds of things. But with God, who is infinite and all-powerful, when God says, I know I will do something, that is the foreknowledge. And that's the kind of foreknowledge we're talking about here. This is God's choice of his people. It is election. God chooses us. And so when Paul says, those whom God foreknew, he's not talking about a God who's waiting on us and says, well, I know it because I see it someday. I mean, no, it, it's a God who says, I choose to know you. I choose to know you. And this kind of knowledge um, is really beyond us. Understand when we talk about the foreknowledge of God, we're talking in an eternal dimension. When we're talking about the free will of the human heart, we're talking about a more limited, finite dimension. But the Bible holds those two together. We hold those two together because the Bible tells us that. And what a comforting thought. That's what I want for us to look at a little bit later on this morning is the wonder of the foreknowledge of God. All right? So let's uh, read in. We'll, we'll start at verse 28. Famous verse. We talked about this a little bit last week. And we'll read through verse 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, how do we know this? Here's how we know. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Every one of those verbs is in the past tense like it's a done deal. Folks, it's a done deal. That's our confidence and our hope. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, your love and compassion for us is beyond us. It overwhelms us with how deeply you care about us. And Father, when we read the scriptures, we are not comforted by a philosophical approach to the nature of things. We are comforted by the fact that you are the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer. You are the one who has ordained and chosen from the foundation of the world that you would work your perfect will in our lives. Father, I give you praise and honor and thanksgiving and glory for the justice of your decision. And Father, for the amazing love of your choosing us. And so, Father, keep us obedient and thankful and grateful. Father, keep us at, your, at, at the foot of your throne, constantly worshiping you, adoring you. Father, keep us ever in awe of the majesty of your foreknowledge of us that has saved us. And Father, I praise and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. The alternative title for this sermon is... Oprah Winfrey 
and the foreknowledge of God. Oprah Winfrey, some of you don't remember her, some of you do, but Oprah Winfrey was a celebrity. She made a ton of money, had a lot of influence, and all she did was just talk to people. She had a talk show, and um, everybody loved her. Um, but in telling her story about why she didn't believe in God and providence and things like that, she said that as a young girl, she was in her church listening to the pastor talk about God knows everything about you, God cares for you, God loves you, you know, all those things that are so wonderfully, wonderfully uh, comforting to us. And she said that sitting there in that church listening to the pastor talk about how God knows everything about us and God loves us, she said, if there's a God and if he's that big, why would he care about little old me? In other words, her idea was that God is so big and I must be so small, why would he bother with me? And from that day on, she said she didn't rely on God. She didn't uh, uh, turn to the scriptures. She just went and charted her own way. By the world's account, successfully, eternity will tell the final story. But she said, how could God know me? I'm so small. Now, those of us who have come to know the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, we rejoice in saying this, God knows me, and there's no one too small that he doesn't know us. And not just know us today, and not just know us deeply, but he knows us through eternity. He knows us before the foundation of the world. His knowledge of us is buried deep within who God is himself. And that's the comfort of the foreknowledge of God, that he knew us before anything was to be told about us. God knew us. This is an amazing piece of comfort for us. Just Romans 8, 28, we looked at that last week. Just talk about it for a second. It says, look, we know that all things work together for good. Everything works together for good. That's a wonderful promise, but it's for those who love God. And I love God. On a good day, on a good day, I love God with most of my heart, with some of my soul, with a bit of my strength. When I'm really doing it right, I love God upon occasion during the day when I think about it. But by and large, I'm distracted, and by and large, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, sort of sidetracked. By and large, my love for God is not what he deserves. My love for God isn't even what I want to do to love him. And if you take the standard of good things happen and all things work together for good, if you love God, and I look at if you love God, and I'm not even sure you can say I like God if you look at my life. Maybe you're doing a lot better than I am on that. But what we know is our love for God is imperfect. And our love for God is, is encased in the frailty of the human condition. It's encased in our, in our confusion and our weakness. And so if I have to love God in order for things to work together for my good, I can't do it. The wonder of grace is that God does it in us. See, before we come to Christ, we don't care about God. That's the definition of sin. The definition of sin is that you're living according to your own will. You speak of God as sort of in a religious sense only. If you think about God, it might be as a philosophical question or, or an exam question in, 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 in college 
philosophy, but you're really not attuned to God, you're not sold out to God, that's the definition of sin. You're living according to your own free will. And then something happens. Didn't it happen that you saw Jesus one day in a way you'd never seen him before? Didn't it happen one day that Jesus was apparent to you as the glorious Son of God, the Savior who had given his life, shed his blood for us? Didn't it happen that one day Jesus was revealed to you as majestically beautiful and you could not help but love him? And you fell head over heels in love with him. And looking back, you can't say, oh, that day I decided I would fall in love with Jesus. All you can say is that day Jesus showed his love for me and he drew me into himself. There's not a believer who's honest who would say, oh, I put myself in Jesus. We all will say Jesus put us in him, and he drew us to him. And now I love him, not because of the strength of my love, but because of the strength of his love for me, drawing me into him. It is a love that I would not have chosen in my sinful condition, but now, even in moments of weakness, when I know my love is less than it ought to be, God, in his infinite grace, has granted it to me to know that love for him through Jesus, love for Jesus, that is what life really is about. That's where life is found. And that's all God's doing. That's what he did. And what God does, he does through eternity. He sent Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus died on the cross at a point in time in history, but we read that that point in time in history extends to all eternity past, that he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world that extends to eternity future, that we will worship him, the lamb, standing as if slain for all eternity in the courts of heaven. That one moment extends into eternity because what God does, he does eternally because that's who he is. He is eternal. And so as I read Romans 8, 28, and it says good things, God brings me to that good purpose of him. If I love him, I rejoice that my love isn't based on the fact that I chose him one day, but that he chose me. Not that I loved him enough to get his attention, but he loved me so much he got mine. Amen. See, it rests with him. It says those called according to his purpose. And Paul goes on to say, and here's what that purpose is. Here's how that purpose works out. Because God has a purpose for you as a believer in Jesus Christ. See, every good parent has a purpose for their child. Those of you with children in the home, don't you have a goal for that child? You better. And it better be something more than, I want him to be happy. That's not a goal. That's a wish. You know, that, that's, just, that's just a wish that the world will be kind to him. That he'll get the breaks and... Things will go his way. You know, just saying, I want my child to be happy. That's not a goal. I want my child to just grow up and be whatever he wants to be. That's not a goal. That's a curse. That's a curse. Here's the goal worthy of your child. I want my child to grow up to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want him to grow up so that he looks so much like Jesus that people will praise the Father whenever they see him. I want my child to be the kind of person that God says, I'm well pleased 
well done, good and faithful servant. I want my child to be sufficiently attuned to the work of the Holy Spirit that when the onslaught of the world and the persecution of their society and the attacks of the devil come, that they have enough strength to turn to God and trust in the Holy Spirit that they would follow obediently in the footsteps of Jesus. That is the goal for my child. See, that's the goal worthy of being a parent to your child. And I just offer that to you to think about it in child parenting uh, classes. But God has a goal for us. And he has a purpose for us. And so Paul says everything works for good to those who love God. And we understand that that's all grace. We understand that's all God's doing in our lives. To those called according to his purpose, we, we didn't call ourselves we didn't summon God and bring him down. We'll read about that later on in Romans. But, but rather, God came down to us and brought him to himself. God called us. And so those who love him, those who are called and called according to the purpose of God. Now, what is that purpose? What is the assurance that Romans 8.28 is true? And that's why you have Romans 8.29 and 30. All right, that you've got to read them all together. And Paul's saying, here's how you can be certain that everything works together for good, works according to God's purpose. Here's why. Because those whom he, God, foreknew, those whom he knew before this thing ever got started, the ones that, that God knew, that's who he's talking about. Now, understand what that means. That means it begins in the heart and the mind of God. See, we didn't appoint a committee. We didn't get together and say, you know, this sin thing is kind of, kind of getting to us now. Uh, we're, we're sort of tired of, of bumbling our way through life and not getting anywhere near what, what it means to be a true um, human being created in the image of God. We didn't say, well, we're tired of that. Let's form a committee and figure out how to solve that problem. We'll submit our proposal to God, and he'll have the angels vote on it, and if 60% of the angels vote for it, we'll, we'll do it. There was always one angel who was a holdout. <laughs> no. It started in the heart and the mind of God, who before we were born said, I know you. Remember what he said to Jeremiah? Have I talked about Jeremiah this morning yet? You remember what he said to Jeremiah? In chapter 1, verse 5, somewhere in there, he says, look, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, before I knit you together, before I put you together as a human individual, even before that moment, way before that, he said, I knew you. That's what God says to, to Jeremiah. He says, I knew you, and I have plans for you, and you're going to be my prophet, but I knew you. You see, the foreknowledge of God is not a knowledge of facts. So too often, that's, that's where we get hung up on the foreknowledge of God. We think it's all about facts, that God simply has a, um, a, a greater grasp on the facts. And when he thinks about me, he goes to the three-by-five index. Boy, that dates, dates me. Uh, he goes to the, to the Excel file, and he pulls up our, our file, and he looks on that and says, oh, here's Wayne, here's fact number one, fact number two, fact number three. Uh, fact number four, he says, okay, let me memorize those. Okay, I got the facts down. God has foreknowledge of me. No, to know in this case is to know a person. It's a personal knowledge, not a factual knowledge. God knows the facts, but the foreknowledge of God is a relational knowledge of us. In English, we don't do that. We use the word know for facts and for people. Other languages are better than that. Uh, Spanish, for example. Anybody speak Spanish here? Um, 
or can I, can I fake it? <laughs> it seems to me I recall that Spanish has the word saber, to know facts. Somebody nod yes. Just, I don't care if you speak Spanish or not, just nod yes so I feel good. Has the word saber, thank you, has, has saber, to know facts, and conocer, which is to know people. I was reminded after, after service, German does the same thing. I don't know about French, but I know English doesn't. When it talks about the foreknowledge of God, it's talking about the, the personal knowledge. It's like when Jesus said, I know my sheep. He says, I know my sheep. Of course he knows his sheep in a factual sense. But he says, I have that knowledge, that interconnected relationship with my sheep. That's the kind of knowledge he was talking about. And so God foreknew us. He designed and declared. He elected us. He chose to have a personal relationship with us long before we had ever done anything good, bad, or indifferent. What does that mean? It means the foundation of our salvation rests in God and not in us. And if it rests in God, it's an unchanging foundation. It cannot be altered. It cannot be changed and taken away because it rests in who God is. That's why the foreknowledge of God, God's foreknowledge of us is one of the most precious and dear doctrines of the Christian faith. You know, for all the, the argumentation that goes on between the Calvinists and the Arminians and so forth, and, and I know some of you are out there, you think, what, I thought there was a Baptist church, and here I walked into a Presbyterian church and didn't know. Hey, look, Baptists were two and a half point Calvinists all along. It's just we were the right two and a half points is, is what it was. <laughs> But God's election of his people arises out of who he is, not who we are. If it rested on who we are, we would lose it. If any fraction of our salvation rested in us, we would lose it. But we don't and we can't because those whom God foreknew he predestined and he called. That word called is the link back into verse 28. And calling us, he justified and justified, he glorified. This is God's work in, in saving us. And so Paul starts out and he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Whoa, and wait a minute. Now we're off to the races. Now we've got this philosophical problem. Until we understand that, that what God did was he decided beforehand that in choosing us and in saving us, he had a goal for us. He predestined us. We have a destiny. By the way, that destiny is much better than anything you ever hear on television. That destiny doesn't come to you in a soft Texas accent talking about how without the negativity and going with positivity, you can rise to the next level. That is not your destiny. I mean, Jeremiah would have been confused by that. He would have been confused. Jeremiah, he was a prophet, and, and, and God says, I knew you, you're going to be a prophet. Instantly, Jeremiah starts exercising free will. He says, no, you can't do it, God, I'm too young. God says, ah, I think I got that covered. So Jeremiah starts preaching, and as he's preaching, people get upset at him. First, they throw him in jail. He gets out of jail. They put him in the stocks. 
You know the, the, that, that little board with the hole in it down at Williamsburg that you think is so cute to put your head through and get your picture taken? You know, just try standing there for about the whole day and see how cute that is. But he stood in the stocks for a whole day, people laughing at him, ridiculing him, got out of the stocks. They threw him down a well. They threw him down a cistern. He's in there ankle deep in mud. Finally, he gets out of the cistern because they decide he shouldn't be in a cistern. He shouldn't be in a, in a well. We're going to bring him out and throw him back in jail again. Oh, this is great. God works all things together for good. This is my destiny. I'm going to rise to a higher level. Won't have this negativity holding me back. Move over, Norman Vincent Peale. And at the end of his life, Jeremiah is carted off to Egypt. Egypt. He's taken to Egypt, and we never hear from him again. But God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. And that good that he does is far better, far better than attaining a promotion or, or having, having a, 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 you know, new friends or, or wealth or fame. Or that, that purpose of God is far greater because Paul says, those whom he foreknew, those whom he elected and chose, those whom God foreknew, he predestined, he gave you a destiny, and here's what it is, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to look like Jesus. Now, if you don't believe in miracles, you'll believe in this one. We will look like Jesus. It's an amazing thing. The way Jesus reflected the glory of the Father, we will someday reflect his glory. Oh, that today and in this life we might reflect just a little bit of the glory of God, that people would see us and they would think of the wonder of our Heavenly Father. But the day is coming when in us we'll look around and we will just all say, hey, how you doing? You know, you remind me of the glory of God. We will bring praise and worship and honor, adoration to the Father because that's what Jesus did. We are being conformed to the image of God's dear Son, and so that's why forgiveness is to flow through us the way Jesus forgave, giving, sacrificing, the wonder of being set free from material things and being happy and content to know that our Father cares for us, though we have nowhere to lay our head. That's to be like Jesus. Just, it raises the question why we spend so much of our time trying to not look like Jesus. But your destiny is to look like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of God's Son. That's what God is doing. And he decided to do that way before you were born. He decided to do that way before you got started. He knew you, he desired and, and, and established, he chose to have a relationship with you. And in that choice of a relationship, he decided that your whole life would work towards this one goal, to be like Jesus. That's a pretty good goal. That's a pretty good life's goal. Now, as we read that, the one thing I want you to notice about it is, it, as we're getting started on this, those whom he foreknew, that's God's action, not ours. He predestined, that's God's action, not ours. To be conformed to Jesus, that's God's choice, not ours. It all rests in God, in his will, in who he is, and what he has designed for us. It all belongs to him, and he deserves all the obedience and praise and worship and adoration. So when you're looking at that verse and you say, wow, all things work together for good, 
but I don't see it right now. I'm sitting in the bottom of a well, you know, with mud up to my ankles. You know, all things are supposed to work together for good, but you know, I'm here in, here in Egypt and they don't even run the post anymore. I can't get through. The cell, cell phone service is down and, and, you know, things are just falling apart. All things work together for good because here's the purpose of God, to conform us to the image of his dear son. Now, the beauty of the, of the um, balance of the Bible is this, this is all God's doing. It's all grace. It's all God's election. It's his choice. It's, it's all that he does. You say, well, why don't I just shift into neutral and I'll just coast through. Here's the wonder of it all. When you know that God has chosen you and you know that he has called you and you know that he's conforming you to the image of Jesus, you want it even more. You want it even more because what God has done is he's taken your will and he's transforming your will and making it in harmony and concert with his will. That's one of the things it means to be conformed to Jesus. Your will starts to act like the will of Jesus. We're not there yet. But everything that's happening in the world and in your life around you, all of that's working together for the good purpose of God to conform us to the image of his dear son. You see, before we come to Christ, all we have is self-will. All we have is self-will. And so the, the appeal of the gospel is, you know, is to choose Jesus, and we have to choose him. And if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, my, my earnest desire, my plea for you is, is to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior and embrace him as your Savior. Choose Jesus. But once you choose him, you look back and you realize God did it all. So like one one uh, old divine said, he said, you know, as you come into the gates of heaven, and I love this, folks. If you've heard it before, you're hearing it again. He said, but as you're coming into the gates of heaven, over the gate it says, whosoever will may come. You like that? Whosoever will, you may come. And you walk into the gates of heaven, you experience the glory of the presence of God, and you look back, and over the gate, now it reads, chosen from the foundation of the earth. And we worship and adore him, the one upon the throne and the lamb standing as, as if slain. We worship him because the Father chose us in the Son. And we magnify him for that. So the glory of the foreknowledge of God is our assurance. It, was, it, it is what gives us that assurance that it's all based on who God is. If it, any of it based on us, we'd lose it. But it's all based on who God is. That's our assurance. That's our comfort. When we don't see it working out, when we get frustrated, when we feel defeated, just to know that God is still working and what he has chosen to do, those whom he foreknew, he has in fact predestined us for this end goal of being like Jesus. It's our assurance, it's our comfort, and it's our commitment. It's what we commit ourselves to do. Not that we would earn anything from God, but it as an act of thanksgiving, praise, worship, and adoration to express to God how deeply moved we are that he chose us. So all things are working together for good. Why? Because the people he foreknew he is also predestined. And what God has predestined cannot be changed. Amen. So um, go out in that kind of boldness.
just just re, you know live in the, in the in the joy of that of that marvelous mystery that I will choose God in all things because he's chosen me let's bow for prayer and father I do ask that your holy spirit would come upon us in a fresh and a real way fill us with the courage of faith give us a keen desire day by day to honor you and please you Father, open our eyes to see how you are working in the world around us and give us that courage also to latch on to your work. Father, that in us and through us you would be magnified and glorified. Father, hasten the day when we look like Jesus so much that you receive the praise, the honor, the glory because of the Son in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.